Hi, I'm Talia and I am the host of Compassionate Conversations podcast series two. In series two, we will hear from inspiring people who work for and with young people. Each episode is designed to share ways of empowering the next generation to ensure they have the tools to go on to have mentally healthy futures. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media, Single Parents Wellbeing. In this morning's episode, I have Rachel Bryden joining me today. Rachel is the founder of Calm in the Chaos, which is all about finding connection through play. Rachel has an extensive background in youth work, and when you hear her speak, you'll know why. Rachel's love of young people oozes out in her work and in her parenting, which is why I'm really looking forward to finding out the ways that she actively empowers young people in her everyday life. Hi Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for asking me. It was nice. We had a good phone call recently, didn't we? And it kind of, we just had the most amazing conversation around empowering young people. And I just thought of you immediately to do a podcast with me. It was brilliant. And it happened so organically and both like chatting and we both like, you know, processing through ideas and thoughts. It worked out really well, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I remember you gave me some top tips and I literally was like, right, I'm going to practice that. As soon as I pick up Lily, I'm just going to practice what, <laughs> yeah, what you had said. It was um, so funny because I was in swimming while waiting for Freddie to have his swimming lesson. I was getting these little voice notes from you and I was like, oh, they're so sweet that she's actually applied it because, well, actually you can have the best advice in the world if you don't take on board any of it or don't try and practice it it's useless advice isn't it so like well done you because I was felt like a proud mum <laughs> oh that's sweet thanks yeah so let's get in before we talk a little bit more about calming the chaos which is your business can you tell us a bit about yourself and where you grew up and when you became a mum and all the lovely details like that Sure thing. So I was born in 1980, right on the cusp of two different generations. My mum, though, was in her 30s or she was 30 when she had me. So I think I'd probably fall slightly into the generation before. Yeah, brought up in Cardiff. I've had the the experience of no mobile phones, no social media or anything like that growing up, thankfully. So because I'm not sure I'd have wanted all of my tragic fashion mistakes and everything to be there forever and yeah so I've moved about a little bit but I've come back to Cardiff for the majority of my career and then I had Freddie when I was well the week before I was 35 and had he not been a premature baby I would have absolutely been a geriatric mum having him which is quite a lovely term to be named yeah and then my life changed forever but prior to that I was a youth worker and worked in social work. I've always just worked around children and young people and had a real passion for teenagers. And Freddie changed a lot of that for me. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, that's so nice. And what was the journey to setting up Calm in the Chaos? Yes, yeah, so I ended up, because he came in, a, <laughs> Freddie's birthday's in February, so it worked out really well with my annual leave, so that I ended up effectively having 13 months off for maternity leave. And going back to work, I realised that I one didn't want to be separated from him, that all of the things that I was putting into practice from my research just meant that I just felt so far away from him and I really wanted to be self-employed. My background obviously is mainly youth work 
And I'd had this real soapbox vision where that loads of young people just weren't understood or heard and that younger children have it a lot easier. And then when I became a parent, I realised that actually that's not true at all, that like society doesn't understand children as much as it doesn't understand teenagers and, and probably doesn't understand adults, actually. But that's a different business idea. And I just wanted to make a change. So Calming the Chaos was born because I'm really calm in a crisis, but naturally chaotic in life. So I thought it was a good mm. play on words. And I think parenting is chaotic. And I just wanted to be that calm voice for people to know that they could chat and express their feelings and be able to get some, yeah, some calmness in their brain, really, rather than necessarily their actions always. And yes, yeah, so I set it up really as a tool for me to work with children. And it quickly became apparent that all of my experience meant that I was really meant to be working with the parents, not the children. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I actually never heard that before. So it was nice hearing the journey that you had and when it set it up. That's so cool. Yeah, I think I'd had so much experience of delivering training in my working life, in my career, as it were, that even though I tried stepping away from that when I set up the business, it just organically happened. And I really genuinely love it. And I think of it as ripples that you send out. So if I work with one child can have an immediate impact on them but if I'm working with lots and lots of foster carers or parents then the you know they tend to be professionals who work with children then those ripples just keep going on because they then work with families and that information is spread out further and I just feel like it's a nicer way of getting that positivity out into the world. Yeah I love that I love that yeah and what does your day-to-day look like with <laughs> frenetic? So my day-to-day is there is no day-to-day. So I, you'll often find me in Starbucks doing admin or at least pretending to do admin. It's the <laughs> thing I hate the most in my self-employed life. And I keep threatening to get a VA and have never quite worked out how to do all the admin bits ready to have a VA to hand over the work to. I deliver lots of training to professionals who work for children. I'd still do a little bit of one-to-one work. I also do group sessions for single parental wellbeing, as you know, and just general advice and advisory stuff on all of the theories and how to apply it. My big aim is to make things super pragmatic. So I spend a lot of time trying to work out how to get those theories to be something tangible for people to do. There's nothing worse than being told that there's this thing that you can do, but you can't see how to apply it. So trying to be super practical and pragmatic is my aim. Everything I do is rooted in science. So a lot of my days are spent reading and just looking like I'm on the computer for no reason. And now the pandemic has happened. I'm online delivering training as well. And I really miss face-to-face training, actually. I used to really love being in a conference room and walking around and chatting to groups. But yeah, my day is really varied, but always involves cups of tea. That's uh-huh. <laughs> <It's> stable <laughs> throughout my day. Tea. <laughs> I love tea too. Everyone argues that my tea is not really tea, but I do love it. And it doesn't matter how everybody else drinks it, I'm happy with mine. <laughs> exactly, you own it. <laughs> Absolutely. It may look pants, but I'm happy. <laughs> oh. So can you tell us a bit about how you became a parent and how your journey in parenting, how you had to unlearn some of the stuff from your own childhood and learn new ways to parent? 
yeah, so I think I have the privilege really of being an older mum because I genuinely don't really care what people think too much. I mean, don't get me wrong, I still have my moments and I can still be embarrassed by the situation. But I think I was really a lot more sure of myself and because so much of my work in life, my background has been around learning about attachment theory and different things. I really had a good scope of the type of parent I wanted to be. I often say I sort of straddle sort of mainstream and alternative culture quite well because Freddie was in reusable nappies. I breastfed until he naturally weaned. I was full on in there, but I still had a more traditional life, as it were. So I can see things from the two sides. Yeah, so I was an older mum and sort of decided to do things what I felt felt natural to me. And that involved co-sleeping, full-term breastfeeding, and just being really responsive. And I think the difference between that and my childhood, really, is that, that with any sort of obstacle we've come up against, Freddie and I, I saw the behaviour as communication, whereas perhaps my parents saw the behaviour as an issue. I think that's probably the biggest difference. I will say that both of my parents, my dad has passed on there, but when he was alive, they used to be amazed at my relationship with Freddie. Mm -hmm. And whilst they may have rolled their eyes at some of my choices when they heard me say it, when they saw it in practice, they could really see the difference it was having to both of our lives, actually, because even though some of the things that I did appeared to make my life harder work, constantly explaining things to Freddie and making sure that he understood what was going on, I actually had a lot less meltdowns and a lot less issues to deal with. And I've always joked that we never went through a Y phase. You know, everyone says the kids go through a Y phase. But because I talked so much to Freddie, I, I don't think quite often children will ask why in a bid to connect and to have that communication going with a parent rather than actually because they want to know why it's a really low development level way of trying for a bid for attention and of course Freddie had my attention wholeheartedly so we just never went through that period he, he may well hit it as a teenager and I'll regret ever saying that but there we are <laughs> yeah that's amazing that's really cool so how do you work in a team with Freddie and how do you show him in your actions that you value his wants and needs just as much as you would with a good friend that's like an adult? Yeah, I think wants and needs are really, really different things. So, and actually they change as a child ages. So if we look back to when Freddie was much, much younger and like any child, I think as a society, we're generally pretty good at responding to babies. So you wouldn't expect a baby to wait an hour for food. You do it as quickly as possible. And I said that was how I did it in the first instance. I, you know, the co-sleeping meant that through the night, <laughs> if he was hungry or needed comfort, I responded straight away. As he got older, his wants and needs were taken a little bit differently. So any need I tried to get to as soon as possible but I wouldn't have any hesitation saying things like oh maybe he's just nipping to the loo and then I'll make his snack you know because they have a a level of understanding even though a minute is quite a long time for them but needs are different wants are different and some wants are actually a really you know poor communication way of demonstrating need so some examples of that might be if they want a toy in the supermarket or something like that 
actually what they're really saying is I need to get out to this supermarket because I'm feeling overstimulated and actually there's a lot going on. But we can see that the behaviour is displayed as a want and you might be reacting to that. So I think how I've always managed it is just by being really in tune and connected to Freddie and trying to preempt what will be needed. As he's got to be seven now and he's an amazing independent, you know, knows his own mind autonomy <laughs> child. And his wants are very, very different now. And he's able to rationalise them against mine. And I think that because we've always communicated with each other, and where I can say yes, I've always said yes, has made a big difference to how he reacts to a no. I'm trying to think of an example, but he has no concept of the value or money or how things work in the real world. If he has £10, he, like, he genuinely thinks he's the richest person in the whole wide world, which is, <laughs> which is dead sweet. But I will always, I never put any sort of money worries or pressures onto him, but I'll always say, you know, mummy's spending her money on this this month or we can't pay for that until that's paid off. So he has an understanding of context, but not necessarily the worry or any of the big responsibility that goes with that. But he's not, like, and I mean this in a really nice way, he's not my friend because it's not an equal relationship. Yeah. And I'm responsible for him. So he may want something that's completely inappropriate and I may know far more context to apply that decision-making than he will. And, and I just explain it to him as best I can. <laughs> and yeah. Sometimes he kicks back about that and sometimes he doesn't, but holding a boundary is a really good way of showing a child that they feel safe as you know that they are safe because they then know that you've got you know they can rely on what you're saying to them but I think sometimes people mistake like attachment parenting or emotion coaching or any of those things is quite permissive parenting and it's really not it's just about being empathetic and understanding what a person is feeling and what how they might have come to that conclusion and you know, recognising the raw emotions are absolutely fine, but some behaviours not, and just holding that boundary. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. And how have you seen that through saying yes to Freddie? How have you seen that's like empowered him and how has that impacted him? Freddie knows that I will say yes if I can. And I think that's really important. I try not to say no. So it has more impact when I say it. So if it's a no, he will know there's a very good reason for it. But saying yes to things means that he's been allowed to push some of his own personal boundaries. It means he's learned new skills. It means that he can take some risk in a safe and managed way with me there. It also means he's always coming to me and asking the questions, which actually, ultimately, we want to be part of your child's thinking and rationale of, you know, believing that what we're doing is in their best interests. So he's quite an empowered child because I've always explained a yes or a no, or, you know, if there's any mitigating things that I need to put in. So, for instance, at the weekend we were at a festival and he was able to go off into certain areas, but if he wanted to change areas, he had to come back and tell me. Now, that's a big level of freedom and it's a big yes, but, but we put in a small, simple way for him to mitigate any additional risk or me wandering around Cardiff Castle trying to find my child in a sea of drunk adults. <laughs> but so it's things like that. And you build up to it, don't you? But he does feel that he's able to 
ask and to push back and for it to be reasoned and explained. I'll tell you actually the story of when I first did the whole can I say yes thing. So we were in Starbucks and he must have been, I don't know, about 18 months old, maybe even a touch younger. And I'd ordered some fruit toast for him to have. Now, you need to know about me. I really don't like the taste of butter and jam together. I think it's, oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> so I'd always said to him, like, you know, what do you want on there? So, and he quite often had butter on one and jam on another. That was something that like, he'd come to. And he had jam on this one piece. And then he was asking for the butter. And it was before he was properly talking. So he must have been around one. And I was like, oh, no, sweetie, you've got jam on it. And then I realised that was completely, that was my thing. <laughs> it's not his thing at all he's allowed to have jam butter just because I don't like it so he looked at the butter looked at the fruit toast turned it over so that it was no longer the jam side and then gave me the butter back sort of like okay and I fixed it and I thought do you know what yeah why why can't you have like butter on top of jam so I did that for him and he ate it and it was a really good reminder for me that actually sometimes we say no when what we mean is oh I wouldn't want that (laughs) and it's not the same thing is it it's not the same thing and I was glad that I had that experience quite early on because it really made me reflect where I thought I was doing certain things and that really improved my way of communicating with Freddie (laughs) and then I had to watch him eat this absolutely disgusting (laughs) better combo the wrong way around (laughs) I think that's such a good example of of almost not putting your own preferences onto like your child and letting them to like just grow and be who they are and yeah and just to also be proud of their quirky differences as well that's an amazing thing that I can imagine comes from that it's funny isn't it I do have some criteria about the how can I say yes so you know is it safe or can I mitigate some of the risks what are the chances of him or somebody else or property being damaged? And also if it has a major impact on another part of the day, you know, I'm pretty easy going about him jumping in really muddy puddles slash ditches and just being completely covered. But if we were immediately about to go out for a meal, no, <laughs> because I've got change of clothes. If I have, do have change of clothes, it could be a yes as well, depending on how deep the puzzle was. But I hope that he's gotten so used to me explaining things that generally he takes it in good spirit. And that will often say to me, it's a no because. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's already sort of formulated the reasons why it's a no. But I think it's a good way of being because we often will answer how our parents answer to us rather than necessarily or like how we've watched our friends do it or our older siblings we just see answers as you know that's a no but actually is it or or is it just that we're complying rather than making them comply you know yeah definitely I remember like when I was a kid I was quite compliant I don't know I think I remember because my mum was a single parent I remember seeing her just really busy and she just had quite a lot on her plate and she was always present and available with us I always did as I was told and I was always really grateful for what I had and I think there has been moments where I think Lily's quite a different character to me 
and she's also an only child and so our relationship is different because like she hasn't got a sibling and so we do communicate a lot and she I think sometimes when she's kept on asking me questions and keeps on pushing for more and I could say yes to quite a few things and then when I say oh no because of something else when she then pushes back I'm just like, oh my goodness, you're being so ungrateful. It's really hard. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, we have our own wishes and feelings and all of that. And they're just as valuable and just as valid as children's. The only difference is that children's ability to self-regulate and also that understanding of the world is much more limited than ours. And sometimes we won't get that right. And I would hate for anybody to listen to any of my parenting advice and think that I get it right all the time, because I really don't. Yesterday, I did say to Freddie, one more time on we're leaving wagon mamas. You know, when you just, you just, you just had enough, you've got no tolerance for anything. And we should say that we're recording this in like on the hottest day of the year and I don't deal well with heat, neither does my child. And we were both overheated yesterday. And I think that parents need to know what their triggers are and what reduces their tolerance. Because if you know that, at least then you can remember it, not necessarily as your child being particularly obnoxious that day. You can remember that perhaps you weren't on great spirits either. But also that if the heat is affecting you or whatever else it is that's affecting you, lack of sleep, the children are the same. They can have bad days. And sometimes we always look for a reason for things that actually we're just allowed to have a bad day. And so are they. <laughs> like, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, not, they're not even more human than we are. <laughs> they're allowed They're allowed off days too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But talking about the pushback and things, I think that it, it's pretty normal it's pretty normal to feel that they're being ungrateful because you're coming at it from the context of your own life, aren't you? And I think there's some things you could do. So you, you can make sure you're regulated in your responses. So if you can feel yourself really raised into anger, do something to reduce that a little bit before you respond too strongly. But know that it's okay to hold that boundary. It's absolutely fine. You can explain that it would be lovely to have or, you know, it would be fantastic if, just if you're, you're a day out, splash pads, you know, you're like, you know, I, I can hear that you're really enjoying yourself. It's been really exciting. We have to go now because of X, Y, and Z, you know, it's absolutely fine to hold a boundary, name the feeling, show them that you understand how, you know, they're missing out or there's something that's changed for them that they're not happy with. But you can still hold that boundary. And it's not really about them being ungrateful. It's just about them being in that moment, either really enjoying something or really wanting something. And generally, you'll figure out it's either because they feel that everybody else has it or it represents something completely different that you're not actually talking about. There's always a reason and you you can get through it. You can totally get through it. Yeah, that's really good. That's good advice. Thank you. And what are your thoughts on adults having ultimate respect and children learning to listen and respect adults? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like firmly in the camp of everybody deserves the same amount of respect. I don't think children need to give adults any more respect than adults give children. I think we should be really aware of what people are capable of and where they are developmentally. Do you know, I think a really good example of this is consent and autonomy. So we quite often see respect 
displayed as compliance. I think you mentioned that earlier, actually, didn't you? You've been quite compliant. And actually, blind compliance is really not a safe way for our children to be. So I know as a child, I was, <laughs> you know, forced to say goodbye and hello to certain people. And, you know, that would have gone as far as making me hug or kiss people. And actually, that's really not a good message to send our children, that an adult, on the basis of respect and compliance, can make you give them physical affection. And it sounds really extreme, and I've worked in child protection and safeguarding, so, so, you know, I do have quite strong views on this. But it's really important that we allow children to have some autonomy over themselves and not be so worried about compliance. And I'm doing inverted commas in my hands now, you can't, but respect, because it just, it's not necessarily what you think that it is. So I'll give the example of somebody being forced to hug or kiss somebody, you know, obviously I think is really not great for them for learning about how adult child relationships work and consent and being able to say no. But you can get around it as the adult. You can be like, oh, you know, Sarah doesn't really feel like kissing people today. Sarah, how about a high five? Oh, no, how about we wave from the car then? There's ways as the adult that you can allow the other adults not to feel bad and to feel part of the goodbye, the hello, the explanation without shaming or forcing an action on a child. And I think that quite often when we talk about respect, it's always it really is mainly about compliance. It's not actually about respect because children do respect adults and the world around them, but they do what they see modelled. So if, you know, if in the home you're talking to each other in quite an aggressive way or you're demanding actions rather than requesting actions, then you they're likely to talk to you in that way as well. So you might see it as a lack of respect and actually all they're doing is modelled behaviour. Another example is that I don't say please very often to Freddie. You notice that you, you stop being really aware of your language and, and things when you have a child. And he never really says please to me, but we both always say thank you. And it, it's really funny how, like, that's obviously something he's got from me because I'll, I'll always thank him for things. But I'll normally ask in a pleasant way rather than saying the word please because it just feels a bit too formal for in the home. So, you know, even things like, oh, can you check over, you know, it's not necessarily a negative request, but, you know, can you check over that basket, you know, with the laundry? And, also, and I really will say, please, but I always, oh, thanks for that, sweetie. And it just feels more naturally conversation. And then expecting them to say lots of, if I was expecting friends to say lots of pleases outside of the home, I would have to start doing it in the home because there's no way that he would get to see it otherwise. And I'm jumping around top context and conversations there, but there are funny things of how we view respect and actually so much of it's down to the adult rather than the child. Yeah, that's so good, modelling that behaviour. Yeah, and being aware of what you do model because when he went to a nursery that really <laughs> loved pleases, I was saying it a lot more to him at home because that's what was expected. As he's gotten older his tone of voice could change along with the situation. So he's much, much better at saying things in a really pleasant way. You know, if you, if you ask in a relatively sing-songy way, people never take it as something negative. 
and you know and obviously we know that a please or a thank you doesn't necessarily mean polite and respect you can say it in a very sarcastic way it, you know, your tone matters and your body language matters so yes yeah, so I think there's lots of ways that we can teach respect but understanding the difference between compliance and respect is our first protocol I think yeah that's so good and what about when you did youth work yeah what were some ways that you would empower young people during those times oh just listening to them genuinely people want to be seen and they want to be heard and it's the simplest of things to say really really hard to do I think we all know that any of the best advice is super simple but actually really tricky to to do the action on but yeah just genuinely talking to them asking questions and being interested in what they have to say and if their opinion is different to mine listening it's not that complicated empowerment comes from having the opportunity to do a thing and given the tools to do it and you know as youth workers that's literally your bread and butter I should say I spent a lot of time doing detached youth works that's street based where you are literally walking the streets and going up to young people and I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast but if they didn't want to chat to you they would literally tell you to f off because they were just on the streets and we had no pool table with us we had no, nothing at all so the resource as a youth worker was just yourself so you know, if anybody did have an ego going into that job, they'd soon lose it because you, you just literally have to chat to young people and and hear what's going on for them and what they want to achieve. And I met some of the most amazing people doing youth work. The young people I met, I genuinely have such fond memories of and I did it for well over a decade. So it's, yeah, I've got a lot of memories. And, and I see them now, like I did loads in Cardiff and Anvondica and Tuff and I end up bumping into them professionally and it's really funny because they still remember me and I still remember them and it's lovely oh that's so nice I I still think of myself as a youth worker it's really funny I think it's a way of being <laughs> yeah. but yeah the youth work was where it first started with me like genuinely believing that society didn't treat that, that cohort of children very well you know, children being seen as in a gang rather than just a group of friends, you yeah. know, antisocial rather than just having a laugh, <laughs> and, you know, and could go on and on and on. And I've got loads of examples of, I'm quite short for anybody who doesn't know me. So, and I looked quite young when I was doing youth work and the amount of times I'd get mistaken for being a young person and talked to absolutely importantly by the police or by neighbours or by people. Oh, and then they'd eventually see the ID badge and they'd be like, oh, oh sorry, I thought you were one of them. So, and that's a really good example of respect. So if, you, you know, if you come at somebody in a really negative way, you can't be surprised when they react negatively to you, you know. If you're adversarial, people are more likely to be adversarial back. Yeah, I agree. I had that experience of, I think, because I've got a bit of a baby face. And even though I'm still young, I'm 24, there will still be moments I think people think I'm much younger and and would treat me differently. And yeah, it's, it's not good. I had a situation on a campsite where 
Piblins <laughs> in, in Forest and Dean, where there was an issue going on, you know, there was some infighting going on. And I'd taken a group of two or maybe three of them just for a little walk. It was midnight, it was late. We gone for a little walk, and there's a beautiful bridge. And we, we were leaning on the bridge, just looking over at the water, chatting, because anyone who works with children will know side by side conversations are way easier for serious things than face to face. It feels a lot less threatening and they tend to tell you things if they don't have to look into your eyes and so we were having this really nice heart to heart and then this water just marched up to us and I was the first person they saw and who's in charge of you I'm taking you back to your leader now and I was like I was the one who paid you (laughs) and she's like oh oh the bridge is alarmed you never told us (laughs) we're just having a quiet walk in the chat there's no harm no foul (laughs) probably more embarrassed than you were (laughs) yeah yeah totally the kids thought it was hysterical they're like oh Rachel's in trouble again (laughs) but it just goes to show how you know like people do treat young people really badly really badly yeah (laughs) what are ways that we can overcome maybe the stigma around young people like misbehaving or being in a gang and things like that how can we encourage a different outlook and attitude (laughs) that's a big societal question (laughs) we need to change the narrative around it I think it's you know you can do what you can do with the people that you're working with but ultimately we need the media to change the narrative we need society to be stopped being fed things by policy that implies that young people are inherently bad in certain situations and I think we have an issue with a lot of certainly the the justice system some of their policies are sledgehammer to crack and nut style things so you know stop and search is a good example you know absolutely in the right context keeps people safe is it misused yeah <laughs> I'm not even going to be apolitical like, like absolutely of course it is and you know we know that certain people with certain characteristics are far more likely to be stereotyped into being stopped and searched as well and so I think what we can do is use our voice really effectively to champion and to highlight really lovely stuff that children and young people do And we can use our voice to challenge things when they're said in open forums. And we can use our voice collectively to campaign against certain things happening. But that's a three-pronged strategy. And some are for the individual, some are for the collective, and some are, you know, just for us to do actions to change that ripple of narrative throughout the community who perhaps don't see young people in the same way, forgetting that they were once young, and like taking risks, liked being loud, and did all sorts of things as well that they've now forgotten about because it's now legal for them to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I recently did a podcast with Play Wales, who did this campaign. I don't know if you heard of it about all about it was called When I Was Your Age, and it was to encourage that nostalgia to like that connection of remembering like remember what it was like when you were their age and what your thoughts and feelings were what you wanted to do um to be able to connect with your child or young people that's fantastic i'll give you an example i saw in a local forum once people complaining about 
teenagers climbing trees in a local park. And it just, and like, you know, when you just literally hands, head in hands, because like they're the same people who complain that the teenagers only stay inside on their games consoles. And I was like, literally, what do you want from them? <laughs> Complete silence and not noticing them at all. And they just get such a hard time. And, you know, it's perfectly normal to do some of these things and playing in rivers, playing on trees. They're all the things that older generations, you know, rose tinted glasses and all that say like how amazing it all was and they could play in the streets because there wasn't as many cars and things so allow them to play where they're actually able to because play is super important for all ages but I think play stops way way younger now than than it used to possibly because of lifestyle changes some of it is because people play differently you know COVID's had a big part as well but I've yet to come across a child who, or a young person really, who doesn't actually enjoy playing when they get to play something, you know, that they're enjoying almost. It's, they often need an excuse to start, but it's quite funny that once they get started, that they're able to just really enjoy it. And quite often they've done it in my sessions where they're trying to support a younger sibling. And then at some point the younger sibling's wandered off and I'm still playing with the teenager because they really enjoy it. And on all residentials, I always took games to play. Yeah. They do genuinely love and miss that part of their childhood. But they just, they've had to move on, but they still need it a little bit. But adults enjoy play as well, don't we? It's just yeah. that we wrap it up into hobbies or give it a different name. But actually it's yeah. play. It's all play. And why is it super important that they keep playing even through their teenage years and into adulthood? It helps them with risk. It helps them with social norms. It releases lovely endorphins. It builds connection. There's just so many reasons. We can sometimes be almost too complicated or too theoretical about it. But roughhousing and boys all jumping on each other that is play. You know, they may be doing it on the rugby pitch. They may be doing it just knocking about with their friends in the street. But they are playing and they're learning so much about themselves and about boundaries. And they're getting physical touching. They're getting physical stimulus. It, there's just so, so many reasons. I literally could write a dissertation on it. <laughs> It'd be a whole podcast all on its own. <laughs> oh, that's so good. How would you encourage a parent to connect with their child through play? Because that's something that has been a common question that's been asked with parents with older children of finding those ways of connecting with them while they're at an older stage of life and they don't want to play the games that they used to play. And yet, how do you keep a close connection and relationship with? Honestly, I think, keeping up to date with what their interests are and it's like how long is a piece of string type answer isn't it because depending on the context I could give like loads of different examples or answers but if we're talking if we're talking about tweens now we're up to, to, to young people yeah I, and I always think in some ways playing with young people is is easier because you can be like genuinely competitive and really really go for it like almost one-on-one can't you but tweens I think are almost the hardest age for play where they're really trying to assert their independence and their grown-up nature they bounce between wanting to be much younger and much older and 
on the same day, never mind same week. It really can be tricky. And I think noticing bids and opportunities that they want you to play is important. But also allowing them the opportunity to play without commenting. Somebody once said to me before about how quite often when a child does a behaviour we really like, we comment on it and it almost sounds sarcastic or negative. Why would you comment on the thing that you want them to do when they're doing it? Like, oh, you're finally playing with that again, are you? And suddenly that brings attention to it, whereas actually just allowing them to be. But I'd say modelling play as well is really important because if we can show as adults that play is still in our nature, them growing up and being more independent, play can still be part of the narrative, can't it? It can still be part of the things that you do. Right, I think, you know, play does evolve. And sometimes it goes backwards, but it does evolve. And just making sure that you're up to date with how it is evolving and trying to join and play alongside. So, you know, it might be video games initially is the in, and you can be taught how to do certain things by your child. I'm fairly certain Fred is going to be teaching me all sorts of things very soon. But also you can encourage them to do family traditions and have things that are part of your if you're weak and it doesn't necessarily it doesn't have to be a big deal but it can be almost a bit of a non-negotiable you know you, you can have those things where it's, it's not that it's a big battle but it's like oh no, no Friday's board game night or Friday we do this or you know it just becomes normal you know that like aces obviously have a big part of a child's outcome but actually positive childhood experiences can negate a lot of the issues and, and give children such wonderful outcomes as an adult. And following family traditions is one of those things. So I'd say that if you can get it to be a part of your normal week or month or, you, you know, or however it works for your family setup, to definitely incorporate play as a normal thing to happen. And, you know, it has to evolve. The board games I was playing with Freddie when he was two, are very different to board games now. And we have a thing where we go out to a coffee shop and we play games there and we often make people laugh around us because we are both competitive when we play board games. And I call it trash talk, but it's pretty tame. But we obviously both tell each other who's going to win, like it's obviously ourselves. And it's quite funny. So it's, that's part of our tradition as well of that, you know, oh, I'm totally, you know, so I'm totally going to annihilate you today. I'm going to get seven nil from you. And he's learning that it's a safe way to kind of banter with people and it gives them so much more than just the play experience. I mean, I never do win. As I say, I'm going to win. <laughs> so, so you know, that's a good lesson as well. <laughs> yeah. oh, but, yeah, I, I just think, you know, making part of everyday life. But being playful and playing are two different things. I think being playful is possibly even more important because you can get over a lot of tricky situations if you're playful. You know, and without minimising things for people. I, I'm not one of these people that Freddie falls over and hurts will straight away go, oh, I need to take him to the hospital and make a big, you know, play song and dance about it. I'll, I'll always check in with him first. But this morning, he really, he got up at the time he needed to get up for school, which meant that he wasn't able to have a bit of a play before getting ready. So I was playing and joking with him as we got ready and just did little things to make him laugh because being playful gets a lot more cooperation. And I think that's really good to incorporate into mm-hmm. the day. And you can do that literally at any age. Yeah, that's so good. 
Yeah, that's really nice. And it's good, isn't it, to be able to just keep things lighthearted. And I think it's a good attitude to be able to have. Yeah. Yeah, I think being playful is really hard. It's harder than playing in some ways, because playing you you set a time limit on it almost. You're like, oh, next hour we're gonna do board games. And you know, you have that boundary. But being playful means that you have to really think about your responses you have to be regulated enough to respond in a nice way and you have to keep bouncing back and making sure that it's really enjoyable for both and yeah it's much much harder but it's really quite a useful tactic for getting out of the door on time (laughs) that's so good and going on to our last two questions what is your mental health manifesto Oh, you for that one. Oh, what is my mental health manifesto? I think it's, I'm going to keep it really, really simple, not just because you're catching me off the cuff, but all emotions are okay and completely normal. And it's absolutely fine to need to redo something. Mm. And you are enough. Yeah, I think those three things probably. giving. I love that one. Say again, sorry. I said it was so permission giving. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, mistakes aren't necessarily always mistakes. They're just, you know, first attempts, second attempts, all those things. We are all enough and completely worthy exactly as we are. And, you know, we may improve on some areas and we may <laughs> we may not in others. And it's absolutely fine to be exactly where you are at that moment in time. Yeah, I think they'd be mine. Mm, that's so nice thank you and you're gonna like this last one sorry you didn't have any warnings so this is gonna be off the cusp again if you could go back and say anything to your younger self what would you say oh do you know I've already answered it and it is that you are enough because I think that as children we're just overawed with the world even though we may not know it and you think that everybody else has got the shit far more together than you have and they haven't they really haven't and we all have something amazing to give and that's what you need to hear at that age yeah definitely yeah it's any age actually (laughs) that's so good you seem like you have internalized that through what you say and everything because you're so authentic and everything that you say I just feel you're very real and honest and grounded yeah that's a really lovely thing to say thank you I try to be I am not ever professing to be perfect (laughs) and I think if I get about 70% of my parenting I think I'm doing really well (laughs) it's okay to improve and it's okay to have lower tolerance sometimes and it's okay just to be where you need to be at that moment in time isn't it yeah yeah definitely yeah well thank you so much for joining me and sharing all of your wisdom on you know how to interact with young people and encourage connection between them it's been really interesting and I've learned lots oh thank you so much it's lovely to chat I do appreciate I wander around the houses giving lots of answers but I've got so many different and competing thoughts all the time <laughs> my mind that's the chaos part of my mind you say no I've really enjoyed chatting and it was really it was a real privilege to be invited on thank you oh that's okay thanks so much for listening to compassionate conversations series two you can find us on single parents well-being don't forget to subscribe and tune into our next episodes see you soon